there. Welcome to How I Got Hired, the podcast hey. to inspire ambitious professionals just like you to find that job you love or completely reinvent your career. I'm your host, Sonal Behel, founder of Supercharge and career strategist. And every week, I hold conversations with ordinary people from around the world who've had extraordinary success in finding their dream job so you can learn how they got hired. My guest today is Richard Robinson. Now, who's Richard? He's been named as one of the 10 most influential leaders in digital and tech by the British Interactive Media Association, or BIMA, and specializes in accelerating marketing performance and delivering digital transformation as the MD of Exim Engage. <laughs> yeah, I got that right. With over 28 years of sales and marketing experience in companies like McDonald's, Coca-Cola, and publicists worldwide. There is so much we can learn from Richard's career journey. I'm so excited for this conversation. Richard, a very warm welcome to the show. Thank you. It's an absolute delight to be here. Oh my gosh, me too. I'm so excited. So Richard, let's get cracking. And before we talk about all the big names you've worked with, talk to us about the earlier years, you know, pre-Coca-Cola. When you look back, which position do you feel very lucky to have had and how did you get hired there? So it's a great question. And I always think about going right back to the start. So you're talking about before Coca-Cola, you're talking about before McDonald's. Um, and I had a really interesting walk into industry, which was that in, in the United Kingdom at the time, you had two choices of higher education. You had universities and you had polytechnics. Um, and I was going to a polytechnic, so this is more a sort of a technical college that you go into. Um, and I really struggled to get my first job. I had applied for 94 separate uh, graduate roles in the UK. So that's when you apply to companies like Procter & Gamble and Unilever and Nike. The roles that you sort of imagine if you're going to try to get into marketing that you would really be set up to do. And I was being rejected every time, for every job. The letters just kept coming back saying, you know, not the one for me. Did you say 94? 94. I had 94 rejections. And yeah. I wish I'd kept the letters, but I remember the number oh. clearly. So imagine, imagine the scene. I've completed my degree. I've got a 2-1. I think that I can change the world. And I was being rejected and rejected and rejected. But at the time, Oxford Polytechnic, where I was studying, had changed its name to Oxford Brookes University. And this was a big change over in the United Kingdom whereby all polytechnics were coming universities. And I was being interviewed by uh, a guy in my 95th interview from BP, British Petroleum. And in the time it took him to shake my hand, his words to me were, so it's brilliant, you're at Brooks College, Oxford University. And he had made the mistake of assuming that Oxford Brooks University was part of the Oxford University, mm. not the new name for Oxford Polytechnic. And I had to correct him and say, no, I'm very sorry, but no, I'm at uh, Oxford Polytechnic. And while he was still shaking my hand, he said, I'm really sorry, there's been a terrible mistake and you shouldn't oh, be here. Oh, stab in the heart. What's and the I name? Tra- Everything, apparently. And I had travelled all the way from London and I was feeling gutted. But I'm a big believer that, you know, when you have a problem, everybody is actually there to help. I, I believe that, you know, that you surround yourself with, you know, if, if you reach out your hand and ask for help, I always believe that people are going to give it to you. So yeah. my 
counter. And I said, with hindsight, I'm not sure where the confidence came from. But I said to the, the guy interviewing me, and I, and I wish that I knew his name to, to, to thank him. But I said, well, look, as I see it, we've got a 45 minute interview and we've still got about 40, 40 minutes to go. What I'd like to do is just ask you some advice. I've come here from London and um, uh, I know I'm not going to get the role. You've told me I'm not going to get the role, but can I just sit here and get some advice from you? Because you're exactly the type of company I would love to be hired by. And you know, all credits of the guy interviewing me and to BP. But, you know, he said, of course, sit down. Let's have a conversation. I think he was more sort of bemused than anything that, that somebody was willing to do this. Um, and plus, uh, the time had already been blocked into his calendar. So why not? Right? Exactly. And we had a terrific uh, probably half hour conversation. The bit that he really helped me understand was that I was really gunning, trying to be, you know, the total Premier League marketing executive to join the best companies in the world, the top of the FTSE 100. Um, and he said at the moment, walking in here with a degree from Fox Polytechnic in history and educational studies, wasn't even in marketing or business studies, but you were just, he said, there are so many people in front of you in the queue for me to think about. So you're not going to get onto the shortlist. He said, however, um, there are many ways that you can get into the industry. And he recommended I start, uh, really start going through uh, the likes of Marketing Week and The Grocer and you know, brilliant marketing publications, which in those days, uh, all the jobs were print-based and in the back of them. And I, uh, within three days, had secured an interview at a small um, agency, creative agency, uh, just outside London, which I found in the back of Marketing Week. And within five days, I'd secured my first job. And it was working as an account exec uh, on the launch of Orange Phones in the UK. So the UK's first ever yep. digital mobile phone, dream first job, got me straight in at the sharp end of understanding creativity, marketing services, uh, client service, how you could create amazing campaigns, the launch of arguably one of the most successful products that uh, we've seen in the telecoms industry in the UK. So although I was rejected in the interview, the, the pivot for my career, the change of the, what turbocharged my trajectory was just the human kindness, really, mm. of the person who was set out to it, who had gone from, I'm rejecting you, please yeah. leave the door, you're, you're number 95, to suddenly actually becoming my saviour and yeah. giving me this information that was that was just going to change the course of my the course of my career. Hence why I said I'd love to I'd love to know his name. I mean, you know, big shout out to BP for hiring great people like that. Yeah. Because, you know, it was a it was a it was a fabulous moment um, for me um, yeah. with hindsight when I look back on it. Yes, especially in hindsight. At that time, obviously, like you said, you felt gutted, and you know. Um, but full credit to you here here because you know Richard, you made the decision which took courage to ask. Yeah, I, you yes. know, you you were like, um, you know, cutting my losses, but at the same time, since I'm already here, let me ask, what's the worst that will happen? He's already said no to me anyway, right? So this is there's a great lesson in here for someone who's rejected and piggybacking on that. You know, could you give me some feedback, or you know, may I ask you for some, you know, two tips? And most people I feel are you know, kind-hearted and can relate with what you're going through because they've been through it as well. So empathy is not as much in short supply as, you know, the world and particularly social media makes it out to believe. Um, I love that. Oh my gosh, like what a story. Uh, Oxford University. Ooh, Oxford Brooks. 
next yeah, exactly 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 <laughs> oh my but, gosh but i've talked i've talked about it a number of times when people are either pitching for work or maybe they are going for interviews because you know just the law of statistics is that more people will lose when they're in a competitive pitch than will win that's just the odds that you get yes. into you, you know you yes. normally get down to especially for a, for a job or maybe for a piece of work you're going to get down to it's going to be four to one it's going to be three to one but more people lose and will win and the thing that's I'm I'm always surprised at is the amount of people when you lose, I think I believe strongly it's a time where you can get outstanding feedback because the because the, the relationship between the person who was buying and technically the person who was selling, um, everybody understands the rules. You haven't been bought, you have not got the job, your project is not in the is, is not what we wanted. So therefore the pressure of I'm selling and you're buying has been taken away. So asking in that moment. I would like some feedback, you know, as in tell me where I went wrong, because the the, the information that I've been given in those situations, and I, I do it now my job today, is so real and almost visceral in the way they give it to you that when you work on the next project, it sets you up for success. Yes. Suddenly you understand your you understand your blind spots in a way that maybe the person you're now competing against doesn't. You've been given a sort of a gift of brilliant uh, observation of how you went in, maybe the way that you presented yourself or the stories that you told or how you'd set yourself up before you went Perfect. in. That's or, beautiful. Or, yeah. yeah. No, that's beautiful. And I, I want to add to this because I've had a few guests who've, um, you know, shared from back in the day when they were rejected, you know, obviously they were, you know, heartbroken. Uh, a couple of them, what they did was write thank you letters. And this is mm-hmm. way back when, you know, digital wasn't around. So these were handwritten. They knew the postal address. And those made a difference. I had a guest who specifically said, you know, nobody else did that. And the new hire they rejected her for didn't work out. So yeah. rejection is what you make of it. That's what I'm taking yes. away from what you're saying. I, I love that. I love that. Um, so, uh this is such a fabulous start, Richard. And now, you know, we proceed to your ears at Coca-Cola, McDonald's and Publicis. So these are huge changes, different industries. And, you know, when you're looking back and you made these moves, and I know you were headhunted in a couple of places, were you kind of going with the flow or were these moves um, intentional, you know? And, and this is a two-parter because I also want to know, are there any specific uh, memories that stick out for you from yeah. the hiring experience at these places. You know, it always helps to know um, with my guest, you know, what is it that you think helped you to stand out? So it's a bit of a loaded question. Yeah, it's, and it's also it's a great question because it, 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 so it was very intentional at the time what I was doing. So the move to Coca-Cola, I've been working in agencies maybe at this point for about six, 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 seven years. Yes. And what I realized was that I only I only knew what I knew. If you, when you work in a creative agency, you see one perspective of business. It's normally around the creativity or the strategy or the implementation. And I found that I was getting to a stage where I, I couldn't uh, participate, fully contribute to the conversations that were happening in the client buildings at the time I was leaving uh, Scottish Courages or Scottish, Scottish Courages beer portfolio and Scottish and Newcastle's retail portfolio, they're now owned by Heineken. And I found I couldn't compete. I just couldn't contribute to a level I felt comfortable when I was in with marketing directors who were talking about business. They were talking about commercial outcomes. They were talking about return on investment. And I was still standing there going, but I've got some great creative to show you. So I, 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 I had become this sort of tactical player, mm-hmm. but I wanted to be you know, at the top table. Mm. So I... I went to a recruiter and said, I want to move to a major brand. 
And the recruiter, I remember, laughed, this brilliant guy called Roy Houlihan. And he said, he said, this isn't how it works. Um, I get the jobs. I come to you. You don't come to me. And I said, yeah, yeah I understand that. I said, but we're going to you know, work on a principle that I said, I do want to move client side and I'm ready to go. And the right role is going to come up. And he knew me at this point already. And I said, I want to be the top of your in-tray every time a job comes in. And Roy still persisted and said, you know, honestly, this isn't how it works. You know, I have a good think and I come to it. I said, I'm fully with you, Roy. And I bought him lunch um, uh. and, and said, we're going to talk with you. Anyway, so he humoured me. Um, I didn't hear anything for a couple of weeks. And I sort of I made myself pr- probably a bit irritating over the next two to three months. And then he suddenly phoned me up after four months and said, Okay, this job's come up with the Coca-Cola company. Uh, it's your part of the Atlanta team. Uh, it's a virtual team that there's 55 of you that will be working all around the world. You are the strategic team that will be working on the McDonald's business for the Coca-Cola company, and uh, which was massively exciting because at mm. the time, they probably mm. still are, McDonald's with Coca-Cola's single mm. largest client in terms mm. of both volume and value. So it's not a sales relationship, you are a marketing relationship, you report straight into the board of the Coca-Cola company. And so they need somebody, don't laugh, who has got agency experience. And I went, I'm your man, get me straight in there. Perfect. Um, I'm going to interrupt you here. I love this. Uh, This guy knows which side his bread is buttered, right? So he's like, you don't like, my commission comes from uh, the client side, doesn't come from you. Why are we yeah. talking? Why are we? And you were smart enough to know that, come on, this dude needs a database, right? He totally. needs a database of smart people, even though, so smart recruiters know that. So the, to the listener, um, yes, you know, the headhunters, recruiters, they are paid, their livelihood depends on these names. However, who are they if they can't supply, like you said, the entry, if they can't supply that talent. So keep those relationships uh, warm even if you get a little irritating take your time get a bit of distance take them out to lunch have a coffee Um, but I love that and then he said I have this role and obviously I'm sure he pushed for you a little bit Richard and do you remember uh, the interviews you know walking into these large uh, offices I do. And I, the Coca-Cola interviews, I remember keenly because I had nine interviews uh, oh. to get the role. I know. And so and so I had to go through uh, my first interviews. Um, if you think this is probably uh, early 2000s, my first interviews were phone interviews with teams in yeah. Atlanta. Now, yeah. today we'd find this completely normal. We'd yeah. be doing it on Zoom. Yeah. But yeah, up until that point, I was only used to ever interviewing people face to face in a yeah. in a in a room in a UK based setting, not to be confused with trying to interview on an international team where I was on voice conference of maybe a couple of people in the first two or three interviews. Yeah. And then, and then I had to work my way through um uh different people in Atlanta, different people in London, different people uh, in Sydney, and, and so it went on. And on the ninth interview, I by that stage was was assuming that uh you know, it just wasn't going to happen. And then and then finally, I got a phone call from the HR director saying, you know, congratulations, you were hired. And the, the process was grueling, but I was I, I was committed to this move that I knew I had to make. I had to gain experience client side, in my opinion, to make myself credible as a marketer. I needed to progress myself to, to, to continue my learning experience. I didn't feel that I was going to continue developing at the rate I wanted to agency side because I just couldn't keep up with the conversations that, that, that we're having. So I was uh, so I was hired and I was accepted. And uh, at the end of my uh, in week one, uh, I was in London. And on the Sunday, week one, I was on a plane to Atlanta. 
uh, and spent the next two weeks in Atlanta and then spent week four in Sydney. I spent week five in Tokyo. And I just realized that, okay, I really am in an international role here. And I spent the next three years traveling around the world. Um, I was sort of out of the country. Uh, I was on long haul flights every month. I was uh, just going to say that two things come to mind, jet lag and frequent flyer miles. <laughs> yeah, it, you know, and, and I can't complain. And now with everything we've learned from coronavirus, it seems crazy that, yeah. that I was, that the answer to everything was get on a plane yeah. Goes to the country and, and that was the only all. way that was the only way people knew how to do things and yeah. uh so richard so you know with um so was the move to mcdonald's because of that relationship that you're talking about with coca-cola yeah it was it was, it was fascinating really. and unfortunately my 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 theory of life is you know when i think about you know, the, the the work that i'm in is to as i always set out to not understand my client but to understand my client's client so i'm always trying to think one step ahead of everything client's and client i just want to highlight client's that. client so mm. i'm always trying to think about so i was working for coca-cola and my role was to make sure that coca-cola was the most strategic sort of the first thought that mcdonald's had when they were thinking about partnership mm. when they were thinking about uh the uh, the, the new products they might be creating, how might Coca-Cola products work with them? And the, and the shift at the time um, was uh, for, for the demographics of customers, people in the street you know, who were buying Coca-Cola products, was that they wanted uh, they wanted products which were packaged, so in, other, in a bottle rather than coming out of a gun, and they wanted products which were non-carbonate, so that's more sort of juices, waters, teas, um, and they wanted products which were lower in sugar. So in your mind's eye, think about your your last McDonald's experience, and you know, and that's the, that's the opposite of that. It's, it does come out of the gun. Uh, it is carbonated. And more often than not, it's a higher sugar product. So I got to really understand the innovation that was going on behind uh, soft drinks at the time. And the exciting thing was McDonald's turned around one day and somebody was leaving the UK, a great guy called Mike, Mike Scott, um, who's now in Australia, doing a good job with, been through Nike and other organizations. Um, and he was their head of marketing. And the the, the president of marketing for the UK said, look, you do a brilliant job. The team love you. You're, um, you're in our offices uh, more often than you're in your own offices, which was true because I, by this stage, I'd, I'd asked for a desk at the McDonald's office. I was working for their offices a minimum of three days a week. My theory being, if I was going to understand my client's client, surely I needed to base myself in my client's company, talk to all their people about who their clients are. And he said, um, and, the bit, and I missed it at the time, he said, I'd like you to start staying here five days a week was his exact pitch. And I went, oh gosh, I'm sorry. I need to go and talk to somebody back at the office. I'm not sure. Are you the, offering me a job? <laughs> if they'll let me do that. I know. And he literally goes, no, 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 you didn't understand. He said, I'd like you to, you know, to come over here and be the head of marketing. I'd like you to leave Coca-Cola and come to McDonald's. Um, and I was A, flattered and B, immediately excited. I think I said yes before I knew what the salary was because what I had experienced with McDonald's it, being a retail organization they made decisions very fast. Um, mm -hmm. They accepted that they would never have all the data that they might require for what they were doing because life moves very fast in retail. And by this stage, I've, been, I've now experienced new product development teams, customer teams, um, uh, operational teams, what was happening in the restaurants, really being on the front line of, of people um, mm -hmm. who were out there. And, and McDonald's is a bit of a barometer of, of how people are feeling in the UK. So I jumped at it and I thought, you know, if I'm going to continue my education, having had three and a half years at Coca-Cola, going into McDonald's was just going to be fabulous. And I thought, oh, okay. this is a place that I can accelerate everything I've been learning for the last yeah, um, three yeah. and a half years. No, I, I get that. And and so no interview, no salary negotiation, you just went in? 
so there, so there were some interviews. Uh, I think I had two in comparison okay. to the to the nine, nine. I had at Coca Cola. Yeah. But I feel that they'd already made the choice because they'd, yeah. they'd, they'd, they'd seen me over the last yeah. year or so. You know, you're a tried and tested office. product. You're not uh, somebody from the street. Exactly that. Exactly that. I think. I think that. Um, and also, the, there's a lot of shared values between Coca Cola and McDonald's in the sense of their history and the sort of relationship that they have with the public in whatever country they happen to be in. So, so for me, from a cultural fit, I felt that yeah, that was going to work for me very well as well. Okay, awesome. This is uh, this is so exciting. Um, and I've had a few other guests tell me, you know, when your good work speaks for itself, it is your portfolio. It is um, the way that people reach out and um, work with you. So um, I love that. And so while we're talking about McDonald's, um, Richard, there's very there's one thing I'm very curious about. Mm. So you get hired as the head of adult and family marketing in Jan 2004. And Four months later, in May 2004, there is this documentary that comes out called Supersize Me, um, which uh, if our listener is not aware, it was a kind of a big deal. Uh, And this documentary challenges McDonald's core products from a health point of view. So you had to deal with that crisis so early in the time uh, at McDonald's. You know, when someone is new and they're joining a new place, you know, you get into these situations where you need to deal with a very tough business environment. There is no honeymoon period. You just kind of go in, yeah. roll up your sleeves. Um, so talk to us about how that experience went, experience went without having too much time to acclimatize and some lessons from that that, you know, yeah. we can it, take away from you. Yeah, listen, because Supersize Me is still a, a period uh, that, I get asked about a lot. Every company I work with still wants to know about it. It's was seared into people's memories. Um, and you're right, I've been there a few months. It was a global challenge. So yeah. we knew it was coming because imagine it was like a pack of dominoes that had already gone into yeah. the United States. We, were, we already had a really clear idea that the negative impact it was going to have on trading. And it was sort of working its way around the world as it opened yeah. in cinemas. Um, yeah. We were shown the film in a pre-screening uh, in the UK. They called in about 20 of us and said, you know, we're not going to give you a briefing. Do you just to watch the film and then we're all going to have an opinion at the end of it. It was like, what was okay, your so reaction? What was your reaction? Well, um, it, I, my, my overriding reaction was it's not as bad as I thought it was, because actually when you, when you get through the sort of the, the, the 20 second trailer that you might see on TV or maybe the, the headline that you might find in, in a newspaper, which will always pick out the most sort of salacious bits Juicy, of information. Yeah. Yeah. You went, actually there are, there are a lot of underlying things in there that, that I agree with you know, in yeah. the sense that, thinking about the nation's health. You know, McDonald's yeah. was clearly the spine of the story. Um, you know, a guy going around for 30 days, ordering all of his food from McDonald's. And if they said, would you like to be supersized? Um, he said, yes. But he was also looking at uh, food provenance, food production, yeah. um, what was happening in schools and, and, and. What, I suppose that it's, it's hard. What I learned was how do you separate fact from fiction mm. when you are in a crisis? So how do you really get to grips with what is the what are the fact-based statements that are going on in this versus what are the fictional-based statements? The media amplification was mainly fictional. It was just taking a couple of points and then blowing them out. Why was that? Because they wanted to, you know, keep keep on going with the media. But for us, it's suddenly so it was almost like taking it apart in a, in a constructive way and going, here's what we agree with. And, and one of the campaigns I was responsible for was a was full-page ads and all the newspapers, and the headline was just, we hear you. 
And, and underneath that we hear is here is all the information that we agreed with um, that came out of uh, the Super Size Me film. So that people were really clear on these are the facts that we agree mm -hmm. with. Um, and this is what we're going to do about it. Because once you know what the facts are, you can you, you can have an action. You can you can have something that comes out the other side. So my my memory of it was scary as hell. Yeah. But transformational as a career. It, because now, you know, I still have never experienced a crisis like that. I mean, there was a whole team of people yeah. who were working on it, not just me. But okay, okay well, let's get back to the facts. What did we learn is the biggest fact? Well, people didn't trust the food. When you yeah. break it all down, people believed the stories because they had there was no counter-narrative. And when we got to grips with all we needed to do, or we needed a lot of things, but but for the food, if you tell people what's in it, where does it come from, and what have you done to it, and you tell them factually, non-emotionally, so what's in it, so the ingredients are in, where does it come from, its provenance, and what have you done to it, it can chart changing the course of the conversation. And that was where we hadn't invested any time and energy in saying this thing that's coming in, you know, as a, as a counterpoint story, maybe six, seven years later in the UK, we had a well-publicised horse meat scandal where horse meat was found in food supply chain for many restaurants and supermarkets. But interestingly, McDonald's didn't have any horse meat in its supply chain. And a reporter from the Times, a journalist from the Times, phoned me at the time and said, hey, can you give me a, a quote on this? And I said, look, there's a really interesting story here, which is why isn't there any horse meat in the McDonald's uh, food chain? You know, what does that tell you about the learnings from Super Size Me? Uh, and he very kindly said, that's not the point of what I'm writing at the moment. We're not here to do a good news story from McDonald's. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay. But, no, but, 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 this, I, but I loved it because it, it just sort yeah. of, it, it, it captured the exciting learnings that had been had for that. So on a personal level, I grew because I had to face into something that I had no experience of with a team of people around me and above me um, and, and uh, learned from it. I suppose my, the headlines that I learned, what did I learn from that? I learned I needed to find my voice more than anything, I needed to, to find my voice. I needed to uh, always try to be one step ahead. So uh, so I have this constant mantra, and I always put it through to my team, but how can you get one step ahead of the situation that you're in, the client that you're working in? Better still, how can you be two steps ahead? Because everything's predictable, I, I sort of feel, after a while. So but trying to get one step ahead of, of the problem, it meant that you can, you can then start direct course correcting, directing the outcomes of the situation that you're in. And too many times... When things are going wrong, you find that people are almost desperately trying to just hang on as opposed to going, okay, I need to get just one step ahead, two steps ahead. And, and by being one step ahead of everything, you can't ever get, you can't be caught out. You can't have any surprises. Uh, oh my gosh, or definitely, definitely. Uh, there's so much here that is relevant even today, especially today with the whole, how do you separate fake news from facts yes. and, and alternate facts and, and, and whatnot, right? So yeah. uh, first of all, it takes humility to say, um, yeah, we hear you or, you know, uh, this is the fact, this is the fiction. And, and what you said, coming to painful conclusions like people don't trust the food. Now that takes a while, right? It's not something that, uh, because in when you're in that situation, one is defensive and you're like, no, um, it's attacking, etc. So it takes a huge amount of uh, maturity. And yes, it's scary, but it's career defining because you've sailed through and not sailed through it, but you've, you've come out on the other side 
uh, with all these learnings and this uh, coat of like resilience that you have, you're like, oh, okay, crisis, bring it on. Like, I, yeah. I've, what have you got? Like, I've got this, you know? So uh, I, I love that. Um, fantastic. And and Richard, so we're going to change gears a little bit um, and move a few years later where, um, you know, you go back on the um, agency side of things and you worked in some of the best in class campaigns like the Olympic Games pledge in 2012 which was you know very visible with the with Sepco and and as lead for the successful global launch this is a huge one right oral B toothpaste from initial concept to multi-market implementation in countries around the world, Brazil, India, Nigeria, UK, Benelux, France, Argentina, Australia. Oh my gosh. Now, when you have these high visible campaigns, and I'm I'm talking to the listener now, don't think this is marketing and sales is not relevant to you. The question here is team composition, I I guess, uh, Richard, is everything, right? Yes. How do you, when you're leading these, how do you select who gets into these high visibility projects? Yeah, it's absolutely critical. And uh, I always have two ways of answering this question is that I have always had a hiring policy that I hire people who fulfill three criteria. Mm-hmm. They have to be smart, creative, and nice. Now, smart, sound, creative, nice. Mm-hmm. And these sound like small words, but they're very deliberate because smart means that I want people who intellectually can wrestle with the biggest problems. They can go toe to toe with the best clients, partners, suppliers in the market. I need them to be creative. That doesn't mean to say they need to be able to draw things, but they need to have amazing, innovative, entrepreneurial ideas. They can outmaneuver, outthink, outproblem solve anything that's thrown at them. And I need them to be nice. I need them to be a people person. I need them to be able to motivate, inspire, encourage those around them. And what I found is, Provided everybody has uh, a strong quotient in each of the three, they have to have all three. Mm. So they have to be smart, creative, and nice. They can't just be smart, creative, and not nice. They can't Mm. be nice and creative, but not very clever. Mm. Um, But provided they've got all three, and the difficulty is finding people who've got all three of those things. So as long as they're smart, creative, and nice, then they are going to add a huge amount of value. And the second part I put at the bottom of everything is diversity in the sense that you know, I look and sound a certain way. I've had a certain upbringing. I'm from a certain place in the world. It's a small island called the Isle of Wight. It's off the south mm. coast of England, which means that those of us from the Isle of Wight, just sort of, you know, everything north of the island is, you know, is not the Isle of Wight. England is a is a foreign country to most of us. Um, but I need people, especially like a like the Oral B campaign. I need a team of people who can. Um, instinctively understand the insights and the ideas, the execution, and really think about how these campaigns have been created so that they are appropriate and they are they can be in the spaces and places that we really need to motivate and influence behavior. So I've always set out to create teams of difference where the people, when they come together, who are working on the team, aren't all, they don't, they don't all think and act in one way because it's going to be counterproductive to the, to the end result. And I find that the ideas that diverse teams create are much better, which means that the outcomes are going to be uh, significantly greater in terms of marketing or creativity or what you then find in the stores. So that's my sort of thing. If I was to, if I was to really break it all down, though, um, I talk about uh, just hiring radiators. So imagine you think about a radiator, it's like absolute warmth. 
It's people that give. You love to surround yourself with radiators, even on a sunny day. It's nice to be on a, nice to be a warm environment. And the opposite of hiring a radiator is hiring a drain. And so you want radiators, you don't want drains. Drains are the, you know, we've all met them. People, for whatever reason, are sucking the life out of the room. All they do is suck. They do not give. So I sort of look at, I talk about radiators and drains a lot in the sense that if you just needed the quick answer is surround yourself with radiators, do not surround yourself with drains. And that's oh, how I think okay. about the teams. It's these people who are giving the whole time. They're giving to their co-workers, they're giving to the customer, they're giving to the client that they're working with, but they're on warm, vibrant, lovely people to be around, but they have the intellectual smarts and they have the creativity to solve any problem and do it with a smile. And when it's all going, you know, as we were, when it all goes a bit wrong, they've still got a smile on their face because they're thinking about how they can dig everybody out of the problem um, and move them on. I love that. I always love a good metaphor. Be a radiator, don't be a drain. Correct. Uh, such a good one. And, um, you know, the, 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 Cool thing here, and the funny thing is, Richard, smart, creative, nice, someone who's listening, it takes a huge amount of EQ because most of us think we're pretty good in all three. Like, oh, I'm mm. pretty smart, you know, top of my class. Uh, yeah, yeah, creative. Yeah, yeah, so many ideas. And I'm a nice person. But if everybody was top, like you said, top marks in all three, then we wouldn't have challenges um, with getting hired because it takes a, an enormous amount of EQ to be like, hey, is it really them? Could there be something going on? Like, am I giving yeah. out these drain type of vibes <laughs> and yeah. I'm sucking and the energy out of the room without realizing it? And when you think about it, it actually means that I'm happy not hiring the smartest person in the room. So when you think yeah. about it, I want, I want all three. So I'm very happy hiring somebody who was a B-grade student or lower in their intellectual smarts because I want them to balance out their creativity with their humanity and so strangely, you know, I've, I've rejected people for roles who are on paper the most clever person that we've interviewed for that role. But for whatever reason, you know, when you actually then probe them on their ability to have a bit of right brain thinking as opposed to the left brain logic, thinking of the right brain actually just not there. And so I'm so I'm completely open to not hiring the smartest person in the room because I need someone who's going to contribute and give and collaborate with everybody around them to get to the best result. I think I love that you added that because the definition of smart, I, I, I love that you did that because we need to correct that definition. And it's not always book smarts. What you're also talking about is street smarts, correct. which correct. is sometimes more important. There's only so much book smarts can take you if you don't implement it or, you know, bring it into real world scenarios. So fabulous, Richard, this has been uh, so much fun and the time has flown. And, you know, there is this particular question I ask all my guests and yeah. you already mentioned one um, defining moment, I think right at the start of our conversation with the gentleman at BP. But I'm, I'm curious if there's another one. Um, when you look back, you know, is there one standout or another standout defining moment that supercharged your career and helped you move to the current success? you enjoy today very much so it's um so i as you mentioned i was worked for publicists worldwide i've been there for about six seven years um i i asked myself a uh, a one question self-evaluation every year at christmas i mean, just I, I encourage everybody to do this um it's a yes no answer and the yes mm -hmm. no answer the question is will i give another year of my life to these people mm. so it's a way of just 
checking with yourself because I think of my career in terms of years I don't think it turns out so it's, I do one year blocks with all the companies that I work mm. for so at Christmas I ask myself self-evaluation will I give another year of my life to these people and I either have to say yes or no and whatever the answer is predicates what I'm going to do and the answer to myself was no I'm not going to give another year of my life to possible what's what am I going to do next and I wanted to find a way to bring together my experiences of client and my experiences as an agency and I was fortunate enough to meet uh, two incredible people, C.K. Thompson and Peter Cowie, who had founded a very small consultancy time called Oyster Catchers, who um, sit in the very tiny space in between major brands and work with chief execs, chief marketing officers, and how they can get the, the best agency relationships. And uh, they offered me a role. I accepted it. Uh, my pitch to them was, I'm less interested in creating the relationships and more interested in how you can optimize them when you have a relationship. And I remember day one walking into the office, very much company, my, my previous team had been 34 people. I was part of a global team of, I don't know, hundreds. And I walked in on day one to a room and there were six people sitting around a desk. And I went, oh, wow, wow. I see what's happened here. You know, I was in absolute startup line with a bunch of entrepreneurs and the total turnover of the business was probably, at that stage, probably what we were turning over in, my team was probably turning over in a month. And I went, oh, my God, <laughs> I really am now going to have to Adapt. do it. I've got to walk the walk. It's all this stuff I've talked about in sort of theoretical terms. Of, this is how great teams work and this is what you need to do. I am now going to be fixing the printer, buying the coffee, finding out where the pencils are. You know, there's nobody doing any of this for me. And it was amazing. My first couple of months were incredibly challenging because I just mm. couldn't, mm. I just couldn't get into gear with, mm. with people who were just so hands-on and doing it. And you were such at the sharp end. You were so exposed. Um, but my God, I learned quickly and I loved it. And I'm now able to do what I do now because, you know, when you're on a ride with you know, a very small company, there is no hiding at mm. all in what you're no. trying to do. And it's meant that I've got a much keener, sharper, brighter understanding of when a when a chief executive, when all the clients, chief marketing officer comes in, they always conform to three things. They're always senior enough to ask for help. That is a position of its own right. When you get to that stage, you put your hand up and you say, "I've got a problem," and everybody looks at you as as though you're the messiah because you have you've announced you've got a problem. Two is they have got problems, and thirdly, they're looking for somebody who can help articulate what their problem is. So I'm constantly diagnosing their problems and then solving them but um it it, it it was pivotal to what i'm able to do now of just being thrust into the spotlight of you know, there's no safety net there's no excuses there's nowhere to hide maybe a bit like with supersize me but i'm on my own out there and it, it was it was brilliant and i'd encourage anybody to who, who has the opportunity to get into one of those kind of one of those kind of roles nowhere to hide and it's, it's brilliant i loved it and yeah you know and here yeah. i am today yeah, no, fabulous. And I love the the, um, the multiple hats, everything one has to do. Like you said, uh, you know, there's uh, dishes in the little office pantry. Put them in the dishwasher yourself. No one's coming, oh, yeah. you know, to clean up uh, uh, behind you. It takes a different uh, it takes a different mentality uh, to, to, you know, go from you know, Coca-Cola publicists, large budgets to to this, but the rewards are so worth it, right? And I, I love this question. Will I give another year of my life to these people? Yes or no? There is no gray. There is no, it depends. No, yeah. uh, it's a yes or no. So it's very hard hitting. And what a fabulous uh, reminder that you do this like on the 31st of December every year. Yeah. And um 
I, I love that. So this has been such a fabulous conversation, Richard. And if someone's listening and are like, oh my God, this guy is so cool. How can they learn more about you? Uh, yeah, the easiest place to learn more about me is you can, you can uh, follow me on Twitter. I'm mm-hmm. at London, that's Kappa, at London Robinson. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, follow me on LinkedIn. What you'll find is I'm a, I'm a, I am very contactable. So yeah. a, uh, a quirk for me is because I'm a really helpful person, that's the way that I set it up. It means that I can't go to bed. I can't go to sleep if I've got unread emails in my inbox. There you go, plus the insight into me because people just ask me for help the entire time. And I, that's all I really do. I help people. So um, send me a tweet. Uh, you can link, contact me on LinkedIn. You'll find me very quickly, Richard Robinson. Um, and you'll find I'm very contactable and I'm very responsive. And that's my, yes. that's my, role, that's my role in life. And I'd love to hear from you. Yeah, no, I can uh, definitely attest to that because Richard, if you remember, that's how you and I met. That was on Twitter. Exactly that, exactly that. I think I think originally either I followed you or you followed yeah. me and then we just started having my a chat on Twitter. And, yeah, my yeah, podcast exactly. followed you. Love that. So um, I will definitely link your Twitter and your LinkedIn into the show notes. Richard, this has been a priceless education. Thank you so much for your time and wish you massive success with Axiom and Beyond. Thank you very much. I really thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you very much for having me on this morning. Hey, you made it till the end. That shows that you care about your career. And that means we need to hang out a little bit more. So just a couple of things. A new podcast episode is dropped every single Monday. Wednesday, I take out one email which relates to your career and absolute amazing insights that I only share on email. So if you want to subscribe, go to the link in my show notes. That's superchargeyourself.com forward slash newsletter. And finally, did you know I hang out on LinkedIn, YouTube and Facebook live every single Friday at 2 p.m. Central European time. So you are more than welcome to join me. Just follow the links in the show notes. And if you enjoyed this episode, maybe share it with three of your closest friends. And if you're feeling even more generous, leave me a fabulous review on Apple Podcasts. That really, really helps the discoverability of the show. So thank you so much for listening. Take care of yourself. And until next time, bye for now.